Thank you, worship team. I love that song. Great is thy faithfulness. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. Again, Ezra, chapter 8. As many of you know, I spent about two weeks in August on a motorcycle trip out west, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho area. And uh, as I left, many of you wished me well. And uh, I know what you were actually thinking, though. You're crazy. I hope I see you again. (laughs) And so if you prayed for my safety, I thank you for that, because uh, God answered prayer and has kept me safe. I know that two wheels are different than four. Uh, You've prayed for protection for yourself for people you love. You've prayed for your children's protection a lot, maybe especially that time they first took the car and uh, went out on their own. Uh, Today in Ezra chapter 8, we see that praying for physical safety is a biblical, appropriate prayer. Ezra prayed for the protection for the trip that he was about to leave on. In Ezra 7 and 8, Last week and now this week, we come across a key phrase, three times in each chapter, where Ezra writes, God's hand was upon us. Picture that. God's hand was upon us. When you think of God's hand, it's picturing God both controlling and caring with his hand. That's what we do with our hands as parents. We control children and we care for children. And God controls and God cares. So we look, want to look today at God's hand for helping us in different practical, common ways. To get a little bit of our view of the timeline, let's just kind of visualize it. Um, if, if this point is Ezra in present time, it's 458 B.C., according to which year of King Artaxerxes, we know that, 458 B.C. But the background of Ezra, really, we need to think back to 130 years before Ezra, because 130 years before is when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had come into Israel and Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and taken tens of thousands of Jews away into Babylon in exile. You move forward a bit to 80 years before Ezra, 77 actually, and that is when the book of Ezra begins, and under King Cyrus now of Persia, because Persia took over Babylon, King Cyrus had a very different attitude towards the Jews, and he encouraged and commissioned Zerubbabel to go back to Jerusalem with as many as want to go. And 50,000 Jews went to rebuild the temple. That's almost 80 years before Ezra. That's chapters 1 through 6. But as we come to Ezra 7 and 8, Again, several generations has passed because if you picture 77 years, it's about how long it's been since World War II was over, and there's very few people still living today who were in World War II. So multiple generations have have developed, and now it's Ezra who, as we saw last week, wants to take another group of Jews from Persia, specifically the city of Babylon, back to Israel. 
And so in chapter 7 last week, we first saw this important phrase about God's hand. God's hand was directing him so that he would go. God's hand directed him through circumstances and so forth. Today we see God's hand protecting him as he does go with this group. The last two verses of chapter 7 really provide a transition uh, between the hand of, if you will, uh, direction and the hand of protection. Personal praise from uh, Ezra 7.27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. In other words, by sending, allowing them. And again, praise to God who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, there is that key phrase, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So Ezra is going to gather key people. Ezra has uh, chosen to leave a rather comfortable life in Persia because now it was not a time of persecution and opposition. The kings of Persia were favorable towards the Jews. They were probably prosperous there. And yet God led him. Uh, he didn't lead Ezra by a voice like he sometimes did to prophets in the Old Testament. He led him, really, we saw last week, much like God leads us today. Ezra, Ezra was a, of the priestly family, and he realized, uh, I would like to function as a priest, but there's no temple here. The temple has been rebuilt back in Jerusalem. And so this desire began to develop, and, and, and Ezra, we saw, was a man who loved the Word of God, studied the Word of God, was gifted in communicating it, and so rather than just teach the Jews in Persia, he wanted to go and check on the spiritual condition of his relatives who had, what, 77 years before gone to Jerusalem. And so God's hand had been leading and directing in that process. He's, he's praising God for it in verse 27. God had put it in the king's heart, and that was remarkable. Because this king, as far as we know, Artaxerxes was not a true believer in the God of Israel. He, was, he still had this uh, polytheistic, many-god view, your God. And yet, God used this king to do something very favorable and say, I want you to go. In fact, I'm going to donate money for you to go. It's an it's a interesting observation to look, past, look over, over past history and realize that Probably very few heads of state through the centuries have been believers, and yet here is what God says about how God sees those kings. The king's heart, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the, what? The hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever it wishes. So, if you think of water, it has a lot of power. Uh, it can flood and overwhelm or coming out of a fire hose or a tsunami. It's, it's hard. It's, water is heavy and it moves other things. God moves the water, he says, as easily as a river turns and bends. So as powerful as water is, you, you, watch, you look at the map and the thing just snakes all over. And you know what? The water follows it every time. And God can just... Choo, 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 
direct the heart of a king, any king. He directed the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, who actually opposed his people and was used by God to discipline his people. He directed the hearts of Cyrus early in this book. He directs the heart of Artaxerxes. It's, I think it should be very reassuring to us politically that we as believers should not fear presidents. Whether you agree with them or not, God is in control of all things political, national, international, and he will use them in varying ways. Our trust is in God. What motivated Ezra then to lead this this, uh, expedition? Because the hand of the Lord was on me. If there had not been this conviction, and this conviction only really comes from a person who is committed to the word of God, if he had not had the confidence in God that God was personally directing his life, he wouldn't have been able to do this, but he became this significant leader spiritually because he was convinced of God's hand on his life. So he had made his decision. Uh, the king had approved the journey. The king had even uh, promised to make donations and open the royal checkbook when, uh, when this new group would get to Jerusalem. So all these things, you know, you can check them off the list, but something was missing. You still had to have the people that you were going to take back to the nation of Israel. So who's going to go? Chapter 8, verse 1. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me, Ezra's writing, from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. And you can thank me for not reading verses 2 through 14, uh, but you can read that for yourself. Uh, and try to pronounce those names. But it's a list of all those who went and, and how many. And the short version is basically this, of those who volunteered when the opportunity was given. There were 1,496 men listed. And so we can make a rough guesstimate of how big this group was because assuming that at least most of them, let's say, were married and had average-sized families for then, uh, we're at six to 8,000 people who are going uh, back to Israel. The first group under Zerubbabel was about 50,000, so it's smaller, but this is still a very sizable group. It's interesting to think how God needed to work in the hearts of each of these families to desire to go because Persia was pleasant and prosperous. Kings were favorable. There was no real direct persecution uh, in terms of, of, of the religious convictions of of the Jewish people. Uh, One glimpse we have of what life was like in Persia is in the book of Esther. And if you appreciate the book of Ezra, you would do well to read the book of Esther. As we commented last week, the book of Esther occurs between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. There's a 57-year gap and the book of Esther actually occurred under a king called Xerxes, not Artaxerxes, but Xerxes, who is the king in the book of Esther. Um, it tells us that, that they were not persecuted except by, in other words, Xerxes was favorable. He didn't realize he had married actually a, a Jewish girl, Esther. And God used all that because there was one guy, Haman, who wanted to destroy the Jews. And you know what you see? God's hand. Even though God's name is never mentioned in the book of the book of Esther, you cannot escape his hand. 
And it's like Ezra, who, who this is only 20 years before this event, no doubt it seems to me that Ezra was teaching during that same season of the book of Esther. And Ezra says, it is God's hand who is protecting us. So Ezra decides to leave. Why did all these other people decide to leave? What was motivating them? I think, first of all, it was spiritual leadership. Because the vision and the direction that God gave Ezra as a spiritual leader is contagious. And, and, and God's people saw the faith of Ezra, their leader, and they said, yeah, we trust God too. The importance of spiritual leadership, whether it's whatever, whatever realm you are in, be a spiritual leader, especially in your family. So it was the leadership of Ezra, but I think there was probably another factor at play here, and that is natural human uh, relatives were already in Jerusalem. If you look at the list of the names of the clans in chapter 8 that went here, they are largely identical to the families and clans that, went in, that are listed in Ezra chapter 2. I don't think that's coincidence. It's certainly not a mistake, like they've just duplicated the list. But rather, people were going back to see cousins, first, second, third cousins. They, these were people they had awareness of, but they'd never actually met because a couple of generations had passed. And so you have uh, grandparents and, and, and great-grandparents who have maybe told stories about being in the temple, and then you have those great uncles who went on the first journey, and God uses that desire, and Ezra, who you may be related to as well, was going. So away you go. The time comes to leave, verse 15. And so Ezra said, I assembled them. We had to get the whole group together and, 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 and kind of assess. We're ready to go. Where are they going to meet? Here's the meeting place. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. So we don't know exactly where this canal was, but if it's a canal, it's connected to water. In Babylon, there's the Euphrates River, so some notable uh, place. They, they knew where they could gather with a group of this size, and they, they get together and start the journey. Uh, so you have, uh, what, six, seven, eight thousand people, check. You got money and articles for the temple that have been donated, check. You got that. Uh, Ezra, do you have the letter that Artaxerxes gave you to authorize the whole thing and, and so that everybody, will, the treasury will open up when you get there? Yep, got that. Chapter 7. What are we missing? Middle of verse 15. When I checked among the people and the priests, got a lot of people. When I checked... I found no Levites there. I found no Levites. I, I, I need Levites. Let's think about why they were important. Uh, Levites were the servants of the temple. And Ezra's trip was designed to, uh, yes, go check on the spiritual condition and be of an encouragement. He was a teacher. He was hoping to, to teach and make sure they were you know, following God's word. But he also wanted to encourage the ministry there by encouraging the ministry of the temple. And so they had priests that were going, but they didn't have Levites. Uh, here's the difference. Priests and Levites actually were closely related. They were all from the tribe of Levi. Think of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were a tribe that God had said, you are to do all the work of the temple. 
But within the Levites, that's the broader term, there was specifically one family, the family descended from Aaron, Moses' brother, that were to function as, as priests. Ezra was a priest. And so you had all the priests. The priests were the ones authorized to, to make the sacrifices, to, to do all the ceremonies that you find in the book of Leviticus, but to, to have the temple or oper, in operational, you had to have all the workers who would carry things and prepare things and clean things up, all the other things that are not so visible as the priest doing the sacrifices. In fact, First Chronicles 24 tells us that uh, the priests and Levites together were combined and put into 24, organized into 24 divisions because they served on rotation. If you take 24 divisions into the 12 months, it means that basically every, every division would function for two weeks. Because priests and Levites really uh, had normal lives, you could say. They, uh, they had their own places in the Levitical cities. They had their farms. They had animals to care for and fields to plant and gather. And so they could then serve, though, for two weeks in their division. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, you find Zechariah who is serving as on his rotation in the temple when the angel appears and says, you're going to have a son in your old age named John, and John the Baptist is his son. Where will we get enough Levites? Verse 16, Ezra says, So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaniah, a a list of 11 people who are called at the end of verse 16, men of learning, somebody that Ezra trusted. And I sent them to Idu, the leader in Kasaphia. I told them what to say to Idu and his kinsmen, the temple servants in Kasaphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. So he knew someone who would know the right people. That's how life works, right? It's who you know. And so he he says, we need to have Levitical workers, not just the the, the priests, the chiefs. You need the Indians. You need need somebody who's going to accomplish this massive work here. And so he sends them, verse 18 says, and here we find this key phrase, because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us, Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 men, and then another 20 men. And then verse 20, another 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites, all were registered by name. So somehow David had organized that we need even more people, so it doesn't have to be just Levites, but there's a special order of people that they can help as temple servants. And so now a sufficient number of people are gathered together because of God's gracious hand of help. God cares that there's enough people to do what God wants to do. And God will be faithful to supply people to do what God wants to do. doesn't mean it's easy, but it means that there is an important movement of God when he wants you or I or someone to do, accomplish those things. Uh, this is ministry recruitment. Uh, recruiting workers is a major hurdle many times in, in ministry. Uh, none other than Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So Jesus says, what are you going to do? Pray. 
for the Lord of the harvest to supply workers. And, and that's basically how ministry functions around the world, church or, or otherwise. There's not a lot of glory in the work of laborers, but there's a lot of glory to the Lord when everybody functions uh, together. It was, it was a beautiful thing these last couple of days. We've had uh, uh, two different funerals and so forth, and to see just the, the, the people of God gather around and all these roles are filled and all the things that are accomplished for his glory, for accomplishing you know, people growing, uh, being comforted uh, here in the church. To think of all that happened this morning, simply, as you came to church, how, did, how does this all happen? Uh, Pastor Nate is, is tasked with a massive responsibility, I know, of, of overseeing and mostly directly recruiting for the, the children's and student ministries. I asked him this week, and uh, there's, there's, there's about 100 weekly positions that must be filled for our children's and student ministries on a weekly basis. 80 people fill those 100 positions, besides special events. Uh, on, the, on the adult side, Pastor Seth is responsible for keeping people in greeting and ushering and welcome center. And then, of course, you see some of the things in here, the rotation of different worship teams and media people. And it's just an incredible, the grounds, the building. There are so many things that have to be done. That, this is the practical stuff that Ezra said, oh, I need the hand of God to accomplish these regular needs that we're going to have if we're going to be worshiping God effectively and supporting and encouraging the people when we get to Jerusalem. And so besides thanking the people you see serving, your children or yourself, uh, thank Nate and, and Seth for their ministry of recruitment. I wish there was a spiritual gift of recruitment, but uh, there is the need for so many things, and, and I know they seek to do it with grace, not guilt, okay? Not twisting your arm. It's the design of God that his work is accomplished by his people. And so we all have a place. And, and the matter is, is when and, and who and, and how. The greatest resources we have, we've been talking about the building that's getting finished up, and that, that's, that's a huge resource, but a far more valuable, essential resource is the people that God supplies as we serve one another. Remember we talked about the one another's. It, we're serving one another in all these ways. So the first provision, the first help of God's hand is the people. The second now is the safety of the people as they embark on this journey. And this is remarkable, verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal, so they're still there. They've spent some time recruiting the, the, the workers they needed. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So Ezra found himself in a little bit of a dilemma because we saw earlier in chapter 7 that the king gave him everything he asked for. He says, I didn't feel right asking him for... It's a military escort he would have asked for. 
horsemen and soldiers? Do we need those? Well, the reason that was an issue is because there were enemies. The term probably refers to bandits. It's a criminal element. There weren't any really uh, national enemies that are going to stop them along their way. But uh, what bandits want is money, and we'll see they were carrying a lot of it. And so he called them together to humble themselves, pray for a safe journey for us, our children, and our possessions. Can you pray about your stuff? Looks like it. Because you know what? All of our possessions belong to who? God. Everything belongs to God. Money is sacred. And so to to pray for God's protection, that's good stewardship. Pray for ourselves, our children. They sound just like us, don't they? These are the things we pray for. must have been a perilous route that they were going to take. It, it, this did not come up, actually, uh, as a, the safety issue isn't, didn't, wasn't brought up with Zerubbabel's trip earlier. And uh, uh, it is thought by scholars many times that they took different routes, similar routes, but the pathways to get from the city of Babylon to Jerusalem. And the earlier group is thought to have followed the Euphrates River, probably for 50,000 people's worth, to make, have access to the river, maybe a slightly safer route, we don't know. And that, they, that the next group that Ezra takes here is uh, a little bit the, the shortcut, maybe because of the season of the year, and it posed a few more dangers. So what to do should you ask for help from the authorities? Not that it had been wrong, but it seemed that there was a spiritual sensitivity on the part of Ezra (coughs) who had already given his testimony of faith and trust in God's protection. And so he felt the right thing to do since he had told the king in these conversations about the trip, God's hand is on all who look to him. He thought, if I turn around now and say, and can we have a military escort? He didn't feel right doing that for good spiritual reasons. Now, there are people, I think, who can take this issue of refusing help because I trust God to an extreme that God never intended. And so there are those who uh, take that extreme view. You shouldn't go to doctors or get medical help or, or whatever it might be. This isn't about that. But this is about those times when you know that the right decision is This is something I don't control, but I trust God with. On one hand, we buy insurance. I buy insurance for all the common things that people insure. But there is a line at which we can become fearful about everything and basically don't trust God much about anything. And I think sometimes as individual and uh, as uh, husband and wife you're going to have to figure out where those lines are with where your trust is but you do want to trust God and learn to live with a, a, a definite faith in him so there's times when you're not you aren't just forced to trust God but you actually choose to Ezra chose this is this is an acceptable risk with which we will trust God Does that mean Ezra had no anxiety? I think he had quite a bit of anxiety. 
That's why, verse 21 says, he proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey. So when you realize there are certain unavoidable vulnerabilities, that's all the more reason to spiritually prepare and, and, and pray like crazy. That fasting is not commanded here, but it was a way and is a way that uh, they decided to bring the focus on their dependence upon God. The point was, we proclaimed a, I proclaimed a fast so that we might, what's the key word? Humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. What's the opposite of humbling ourselves? Opposite of humility is pride. So the spiritual danger is that we would have pride. And that pride is what lies beneath our need to control and trying to control everything. So they were saying, Lord, we cannot control this situation. Ezra was acknowledging it is sometimes spiritually healthy to deal with fears and anxiety. Let's try to capture a little bit some of the crucial issues that we learn here about God's plan for our anxieties. The first one is humility. Admit there are things that I cannot control, only God can. Uh, if, if they humbled themselves, Ezra realized otherwise, if we're trying to control it all, we've got a pride issue. And trusting is what God is calling for here so that we would humble ourselves. This issue means that we accept reasonable risk. We understand that's part of life. You cannot keep your children completely safe. You cannot completely guarantee their safety. Amen? You can't. There will be physical dangers. There will be spiritual dangers. There's things you cannot make sure they will be safe as much as your heart longs for them to be. And so we'll have to find a wise middle ground where you're not flippant about trusting God and yet you embrace uh, necessary, acceptable risk. I believe there's an important reason God allows that, and that is that embracing our anxiety is a spiritual opportunity. As parents, part of your children's spiritual development is for them to watch you trust God with them. If you're trusting God about some big money issue that they don't feel burdened about, that's kind of like, I don't even know what's going on with that. But when it comes down to them and their decisions, and now you're trusting God with them, and they realize that you have relinquished some control to trust God, now trusting God begins to click perhaps in their mind. And so it's a spiritual opportunity for our children, but obviously it's a spiritual opportunity for our own growth because we realize that I cannot guarantee everything. And so I recognize that anxiety is actually a spiritual opportunity. Now, it doesn't mean that sometimes we have to ask and, and seek human help, professional help even, to deal with some of these emotional issues, but we all need to grapple with and gain the spiritual advantages and growth that God wants to give us through anxiety. So let's embrace that. 
and then what? And then pray. Pray about, what did he say? Everything. But here's the problem. Here's the dilemma. Here's the clarification. Here's what's going on in our heart, even when we pray. Make sure my prayers are how I learn to trust God, not how I try to control God. There's a difference, isn't there? When you pray, are you telling God you trust Him or convincing God, trying to convince God to do what you want? When it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all your anxieties upon Him, is that controlling or is that relinquishing? That's relinquishing. When he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God will, that's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's about relinquishing control. So sometimes I think we tip our hand that we're in the controlling mode of prayer when we begin to think there's some kind of magic formula of words when we pray. Now if I do it exact, say it exactly in the biblical way even, Got to say the magic word and press the magic button. Or if you if you get the right people to pray, or if you get the most people to pray, like God's got a clicker, you know. Okay, now I'll do it. Uh, seriously, we see our Almighty God, you know, being convinced by our. I think actually, in in some sense, what Jesus said in Matthew six is it applies. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that. They will be heard for their many words. Now, on the other hand, pray without ceasing. It's not saying don't keep praying. But do we somehow think that we can control God? Maybe the example of a a pagan prayer would be the way the Baal worshippers in the time of Elijah in the contest on Mount Carmel, the Baal worshippers, they cut themselves and, and prayed louder and louder that then Baal has to hear us. But of course, they didn't. They were trying to control their God. Elijah was showing a trust in God because that's when, when we relinquish control, that's when Philippians 4, uh, 6, 7, 8 tells you, and the peace of God will fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So God wants to use our anxieties to reduce our control and increase our trust. Anxiety is normal. Your anxiety is normal to you. How is God using your anxiety as a ladder to spiritual growth? How did God answer? Verse 23. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. What an amazing statement of God's faithfulness. He did protect. He did help. Not only did they stay safe, but their finances. And we see kind of now how God did that. In fact, this section about the finances tells us a little bit about how trusting God involves taking our own responsibility, but also trusting God. Okay? When I set up, then I set apart, Ezra says, verse 24, 12 of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers. So again, it's 24 people. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. 
So they had this massive amount of money, which was in verse 26 weighed out, which comes out to some 25 tons of silver and almost four tons of gold and a few bronze articles. So each of these 24 men, assuming they was responsible for a little bit of a little bit more than a ton of, of precious metals that were going to support the ministry of the temple in Jerusalem. Not that one man could carry a ton, but he was responsible and accountable for that. And they weighed it all out to them, verse 26. Verse 28, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So there's going to be uh, very specific uh, accountability. So financial integrity is a bedrock spiritual issue. How many ministries have been destroyed because of irresponsible or dishonest finances? And I'm I really am very grateful for the people and the processes that Open Door has for. Uh, financial accountability, or that's why you're always welcome to congregational meetings and, and to see reports and so forth, and happy to describe to you what we seek to do in that area. So having weighed out all the money, and they prayed, and they were prepared, verses uh, 31 and 32 tell us about the trip itself. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. Here it is. The final reference, sixth reference to the hand of God. The hand of God was on us, and he protected us from the enemies and the bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. It's almost anticlimactic how the whole journey is summarized by, and we went there, and we were safe. (laughs) If you were doing a, a movie of this, you would want to describe, you know, the journey and the weather and the drama between the families living so close and camping and and uh, the guys who were tempted to take some of the money and the bandits and the close call. None of that. Why? Sometimes the details are included so that we can appreciate the hand of God. Sometimes I think the details are left out so we can focus on the hand of God because it was the hand of God who was with us and protected us. He is front and center. This is all about his control, his hand, so that he would get the glory. And that's what this whole process of, of trusting God with the, you know, the family and the money and all that is about is so that we can come to a place where we will say, look what God has done. Because, because if we see that, that, that this, this whole self-focus is about us doing something, we would get the glory. And so there has to be a place where God pries our fingers loose and we say, okay, God, and then we can, A, be at peace, and B, someday give him even more glory for the way he has been faithful. Because the bottom line is, this is what has happened. God has been faithful to them. We know that the journey was basically four months. This seems to be a contradiction to the beginning of Ezra 1 where it says they left on the first day of the first month and got to the first day of the fifth month, four months. But it's really less 12 days, which I think can be accounted for by that delay of going and recruiting the, 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 uh, the Levites that you needed. So it's actually less than 
four months to make this 900-mile journey, 108 days divided into the 900 miles is about eight miles a day, if I did my math right. And so if you think about it, if you could move a group of seven, 8,000 people, families, children, animals, from like here to Belgium in a day, you've done all right. Day after day, this was a very successful journey. The progress was great. They got there in time before uh, in fall. And so it was a successful journey because the hand of God was with us. And I just imagine that you know, one of the first things in heaven we will be absolutely sure of besides the glory of Christ is if we look back at all, we'll say, great is your faithfulness. Your hand was on us. And Ezra is showing us that we don't have to wait till heaven to say that. And that what we do in our life today is saying, no, great is your faithfulness. And we've got a whole record of God's faithfulness to others in case we don't have a whole lot of experience ourselves. And we say, great is thy faithfulness. How did the money turn out on the fourth day? They rested a while. On the fourth day, that is in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, we weighed out the silver and gold. End of verse, 30, or 30, verse 34, everything was accounted for by number and weight. It's all, it was all good. So how do you respond to that? Praise. We started out looking at chapter 7, verse 27, where Ezra gave his personal praise for the way God had directed and worked in Artaxerxes' heart to commission this great journey and endeavor. And now we see that when they actually arrive, it's not just a personal praise, but he launches a time of public corporate praise and celebration. Then the exiles, verse 35, who had returned from the captivity, sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin, as a sin offering, uh, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. The 12 uh, bulls representing the 12 tribes, even though this is only two tribes that returned, if you know the history of that, it's just, just the southern portion that returned, but they were acknowledging they were part of a complete nation of Israel with 12 tribes. The numbers of the others probably don't, have significance. I don't know. Maybe that's the animals that survived uh, the trip. But there's a time to praise God for his faithfulness. I know we plan to do that in our November uh, 16 and 17 weekend, celebrating just the specific thing God has done in providing uh, the building. But I, I just trust that you have times of celebration where you as a family, you as an individual, where we just say, look what God has done for us. And it's in the context here of a sin offering. So as, as they praised God, it wasn't like, to avoid saying this is what we have done, you acknowledge, first of all, let's, let's do a sin offering. These are, these are, this is a special event. This isn't one of the regular feasts. Let's do a sin offering. We are sinners. And yet look how God was faithful to us. My sin and God's goodness really spells out the grace of God in our life. Finally, they delivered the letter, the king's orders, uh, to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and got the assistance that had been promised. You know, in this uh, room we represent just a few anxieties, right? If the next slide was to scroll just your anxieties, 
how big would the list be? And then if we added the person who was sitting closest to you and the person next to them, the list grows. And if you took everyone in the service, everyone at Open Door, all the believers in the county, in the state, in the country, around the world, can you imagine the accumulated list of anxieties and fears and worries What is adequate to deal with all of that? God's hand of control. God's hand of care. He does have the whole world in his hands. And so he does have your world. That's the amazing thing, that with all that he cares for in his infinite nature, he cares specifically for your situation. And so if it's your baby's health, or your teenager's friends, or your adult child, your elderly parents, your spouse, your marriage, your health, the bills, travel, whatever it is, we are securely in the hand of the one who controls, cares, loves us by his grace. He has it all in his hand. Let's pray. Father, we uh, do thank you and praise you for the way you hold the universe together in your power. That which you created is sustained by your hand, your word says, and the way you then deal so very specially and graciously with your people. Thank you. We just bring before you our worries and anxieties and cast them again upon you and know that you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.